Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Well, greetings, CGI Burlington. How's everybody? Pleasure to be here, as always. Certainly were or was expecting. Uh, I actually did touch base with Murray uh, via email a few days ago. He did let me know that they were still traveling and uh, that they wouldn't uh, be here. I thought some of the others uh, would be here. So that's okay. We'll make do with what we have. It's great to see everybody here, and welcome back from your respective feast sites, those that were able to go to the feast. Um, In a moment, uh, just to kind of set the stage for what I want to discuss, I'm going to kind of open up the floor, and I want to get a little bit of feedback from you once again, those who did attend uh, the feast, various feast sites. I do see some familiar faces that I had the opportunity to be in fellowship with in Collingwood, Ontario. But I do want to kind of open things up a little bit to set this up, and I'll ask a specific question. What made your feast experience unique? So what made your feast experience, this very recent, just a few days ago, feast experience unique? Uh, For myself, I'll, I'll go first. So this was, I mean, a bit of a mini milestone for me, feast number 15. So this is my 15th feast that I observed uh, with my family in uh, Collingwood, Ontario. And one of the things that made the feast uh, personally unique for myself, and I was sharing this a little bit with uh, Brother Adrian earlier, was I was, our entire family was there. So as most of you know, I do have uh, four siblings that are all in the faith, all in the church, and my mother as well. And usually every year, you know, one or two of the siblings will travel, whether it's down south or somewhere else. So there's a few times that we all get together, the entire family, for the feast. And then, you know, our family is growing, as most of you know, nieces and nephews and whatnot, the youngest being, I'm not even sure if Malachi is full two months yet. He was recently born. Um, So it was just a great pleasure just being amongst uh, the family, and we got to take a nice, you know, family photo and whatnot. Uh, Of course, it's it's not the same. Of course, we do miss uh, my dad, as you uh, most of you know, uh, passed away a year ago. So this um, would have been his 21st uh, feast. Um, He missed, of course, you know, the last two. Um, He attended the feast for 19 years. But just being amongst, once again, my siblings and, you know, the nieces, nephews, my mother, of course, um, was very special, that very special, you know, quality time. And we did even have one uh, evening together in fellowship where, you know, we had them over at our place. We had one of those little um, rental home units. And, um, yeah, we had a nice meal, great fellowship, and it was just nice to kind of have everyone there uh, for the feast. So that was one of many things that made my feast experience unique. I'd like to hear from you, and particularly from those who, um, you know, weren't in Collingwood, um, but anybody who wants to uh, chime in uh, just to maybe share one thing that made your feast experience uh, unique. Yes, bro. Okay. Right. 
Okay, the center, central focus. Okay. Excellent. I love that. Anybody else? What made your feast experience unique? Don't be shy. Let's hear from a couple more. Go ahead, dear. <laughs> this is probably the first time. <laughs> Well, maybe the second. I think our first feast experience, or your first feast, I believe you were pregnant with uh, Siloam, if I remember correctly. But yes, a feast without diapers. (laughs) That's cute. I like that. Oh, boy. Anybody else? Who wants to top that one? (laughs) Yes, brother. Go ahead, Ray. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Wow. Wow, very nice. Good experience. Very unique. Very nice. Do you have one? Bob? Is that right? <laughs> Do you care to elaborate on that? Because <laughs> we saw you in, uh, you were in Collingwood for a couple of days. You also spent some time in uh, Midland. Was it, w- w- which? Okay. Okay. But I'm sure there were some blessings amongst the trials or whatever it was that occurred. There's always that bright. Okay. Right. Oh, okay. Health-wise. Okay, that's unfortunate. It happens, sister. Okay, right. And I know music is a big part of the culture in Jamaica. Oh, yeah, very nice. Very nice, very nice. Okay, music. Love music. Anybody else? Do you have anything, uh, dear Sheila? Yes. Very nice. That's really good. It was a good opportunity. A door open. I love that. Very nice. Very nice. Well, thank you, everybody, for for sharing. Uh, Here's a question that I want each and every one of us to consider. How do we evaluate our feast experience? How do we evaluate if we had a good feast? What criteria do we use? You know, sometimes we'll think of things like, you know, the messages were good. Um, There were a lot of activities, which led to a lot of, you know, fellowship experiences. Um, You know, it was in a good location. The weather was nice, this, that, and the other. I believe that as we mature, brothers and sisters, spiritually in the faith, we're not as concerned with things like, you know, weather and location. Um, More importantly, we're not as concerned with 
the things that we receive or the things that we would get from the feast. But our main aim, our main focus is what we personally contribute to the feast. Our main objective is to benefit others. So once again, we're not as concerned with, you know, the beautiful weather and the scenery and, you know, the things that we can receive, but the things that we can get. And that's one thing I want us to all maybe take a moment to ponder is how did I personally contribute to my feast experience? Or how did I contribute to the feast experience of others? So something for us to consider. For me, myself, I was very actively involved in the feast uh, this year, as I often am. I was on the schedule uh, quite a bit. I did a couple of messages. I led services in terms of worship leading, I believe a total of four times. I was involved with, I was helping out with announcements and other administrative things, working under the feast coordinator, uh, Harain Smith. Uh, So there was a lot of work. There was a lot involved. But just because I happened to be a part of the feast planning committee and I was, you know, involved in speaking and other aspects, that doesn't mean that my contribution was any more significant than somebody who was not on the feast schedule or who wasn't as apparently active. So, for example, it could be something as small as, you know, as you said, Sheila, going to make a friend, um, you know, putting a smile on somebody's face, impacting somebody in what might be appear to be small, but in a meaningful manner. It could be something as simple as, you know, somebody gives, um, you know, whether it's a message or an item of special music, and just going up to them and saying, thank you for that, just showing that love, showing that appreciation, encouraging our brothers and sisters. So each and every one of us has a role to play. As I said, it doesn't matter whether we're actively involved on the schedule or whatnot. So just something for us to ponder and consider as we move forward is what can I do perhaps more to contribute to the feast experience of another brother and another sister? And I think that does have to do with our spiritual maturity. It's more thinking of others as opposed to ourselves. More what can I do to impact and benefit my brother or my sister rather than more than what I can get for myself. And a part of that is, and as I said, it has a lot to do with spiritual maturity as we mature and grow and develop in the faith. You know, oftentimes we'll, you know, complain about little things and things that don't go well, whether it's our accommodations or bad weather. I recall a feast, um, and I'm so bad with time, so I can't recall the year, but a few years ago, and you might have been there as well, Adrian and and Jennifer, in Midland, where um, it almost like it rained every day. We had very, very bad weather, but it was an amazing feast. We had a really great time. The bond, the unity, the fellowship was really, really strong. Um, This year in Collingwood, and, you know, once again, probably being a part of the feast committee, so, you know, I had a chance or opportunity to connect with a lot of brothers and sisters and, yes, feel some, I wouldn't even call them complaints, but perhaps concerns about little things in terms of accommodations or whatnot. Um, Even us, I believe it was, uh, we had an interesting experience. Day six, I believe. Uh, my wife and I are, are in bed getting ready to fall asleep, maybe around 1230 or so. So we're lying in bed. All of a sudden we hear this thunderous crash, like something like lightning or thunder. And um, what happened was the mirror in our bathroom, there was three bathrooms. It was, it was a house, so it was the, the bathroom in the, in the master suite. I guess the mirror wasn't mounted properly on the wall. 
and it just came thundering down. Once again, this is the middle of the night, and you can see our four lovely children at the back. Three of them woke up, uh, Judah the youngest, I don't know how he managed to <laughs> remain sleeping. The sound was so loud, but I guess, you know, the young ones can sleep through anything. Um, Shiloh, who's uh, six years old, she just woke up and started screaming. She was so scared. It, was, it wasn't pretty at all. Um, yeah, they said likely the mirror just was not mounted properly and it just like splattered and there was glass, shards of glass everywhere into the tub and this and that. And, you know, we cleaned it up as much as we could at that time of night. And obviously we called uh, maintenance the next day. But even with that, and luckily, of course, and, and praise be to God that, you know, wasn't a worse situation. Nobody got hurt. I mean, God forbid if one of us happened to be in the bathroom or in that vicinity at the time, it could have been a lot worse. But things like that, I mean, we could have allowed that to, you know, affect our feast experience and really been, you know, upset or sour or whatnot. You know, we kind of wiped it off. It happened. Um, I did go, I think, a couple of days later and talk to, you know, the management of the hotel and explain to them the inconvenience of the incident. And, you know, they did something to kind of, you know, to take care of the situation uh, for us. But once again, in terms of, you know, spiritual maturity, and this is just something for us to perhaps ponder as we, you know, move forward from feast to feast, is more so what we can do or how we can contribute and how we can benefit others, once again, as opposed to just always thinking inwardly or thinking of ourselves. So today, as mentioned, the title of the message is Developing Godly Fear. Developing Godly Fear. So for those that were at the feast in Collingwood, uh, the topic or the theme of this year's feast was learn to fear the eternal. Learn to fear the eternal. So this message I'm going to present is very similar to one of the messages that I gave at the feast, and I thought that it would be uh, neat to bring a little flavor of Collingwood here to Burlington, seeing how most of the Burlington brethren missed the feast this year in Collingwood. But I do see once again that, of course, most of the brethren are traveling, <laughs> but that's okay. So for those that, uh, as I said, this is a similar message to one of the messages that I gave. I've moderated a little bit. So for those that might be kind of hearing some of these elements for the second time, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It's always good. Repetition is a good thing. And for those that um, weren't in Collingwood, uh, this is a little bit, once again, of what we, um, what we learned uh, regarding fearing God, learning to fear the eternal. So let's begin in Deuteronomy 14. I'll ask you to turn there with me, Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14. So these are tithing principles, tithing principles. And I'm going to go through quite a few scriptures here. And once again, we're talking about fearing God, fearing the eternal, and learning to develop this godly fear that God indeed wants us as his children to have. Deuteronomy 14, verse 23. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may what? That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. You may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So we see there, brothers and sisters, that one of the reasons why we are commanded to keep the feast, one of the reasons we keep the feast is to learn to fear God, to learn to fear the eternal, to have a right, healthy kind of fear 
that's what it's all about. When we think about godly fear, there's no negative connotations. God does not want us to be afraid of him. The Hebrew word for fear, which is Strong's 3372, for those that have their concordances, Strong's 3372, I believe it's pronounced Yare, and it has a dual meaning. It means to either be afraid or to have reverence or to honor. And in the Greek, the word is phobos, which also has a dual meaning depending on the context. It could mean to be afraid or to have reverence or honor. So that's what I want to expand on today and go through quite a few scriptures as we learn to fear the eternal, to develop this godly type of fear. Hebrews 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, verse 7. As I said, I want to go through quite a few scriptures that really speak to us in terms of how we ought to develop this godly type of fear that God wants us to have for him. Hebrews 5, verse 7. And we'll take a look and we'll see that our Lord and Savior, Yeshua himself, had godly fear. And if Jesus had godly fear and we're to follow in his footsteps, then that's something that obviously we have to learn to develop and have as well. Hebrews 5, verse 7 who in the days of his flesh, so his, once again referring to Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of what? Because of his godly fear. So Christ's prayers, Jesus' prayers and his supplications were heard by the Father because he had godly fear jesus himself had godly fear proverbs 14 verse 27 proverbs 14 verse 27 the fear of the lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death and of course we all know brothers and sisters that a fountain symbolizes the origin of something So the fear of the Lord, essentially, is the origin of life. Once we begin the process of salvation, you know, of course, beginning with repentance and baptism, the laying on of hands, the giving of the Holy Spirit, that's the process, that's the fountain in which we begin to have this fear, to develop this godly fear, which, of course, leads to eternal life. Deuteronomy 10. Turn with me there to Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. This outlines clearly how we ought to fear God. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Most of us will see the subtext in your Bible should say the essence of the law. This is indeed the very essence of the Torah, of the law. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? And this is how, so here it is right here. This is how we ought to fear him. To walk in all his ways and to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today, for your good. Verse 14. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God Also the earth with all that's in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love him, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as is this day. 
Therefore, check this out. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So basically amend your ways. Change the way that you're living. This is talking about repentance. And then let's read further. It goes on to describe a loving God who does good things for those who fear him. In verse 17, for the Lord your God is for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. <clears throat> the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. Verse 21, he is your praise and he is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I want us, brothers and sisters, to take a moment and just to ponder and think about all of the great all of the awesome things that our God has done for us in our lifetime, all the many blessings that he's bestowed upon us, the trials that we've overcome, just the mere fact that we're here, that's an awesome blessing. As I was saying earlier, I had the privilege of observing my 15th feast. That's a blessing. There were persons at the feast in Collingwood that kept the feast over 40 and some even over 50 years just to have that longevity of life and to be in the faith and this way of life. Are we not blessed, brothers and sisters? Are we not blessed? Praise the Lord. Now, when we think of fear in God, there's basically two main points that I want to focus on for this message. And the first, number one, is that the fear of God means having a deep respect, reverence, and being in awe of him. So having a deep respect and reverence and being in awe of him, which is one of the things that our brother Adrian mentioned in his intercessory prayer right from the get-go, that we are in awe of God. And why should we be in awe of him? Because he's an awesome supreme being, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the giver and the sustainer of life. So we ought to be in awe of him, and that's what fearing God, is, or a part of what fearing God is all about. Turn with me to Psalm 33 and verse 8. Psalm 33 and verse 8. Psalm 33, 8 says, Let all the earth, not some of the earth, not a part of the earth, not just the children of God, not just Israel. Psalm 33, 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. All. So having godly fear means that we are to be in constant awe, constant appreciation and respect for God, for Yahweh, for who he is and for what he has done for us. So it begins with that acknowledgement, brothers and sisters, that deep respect, that deep devotion that yearning desire to basically please him because of, once again, who he is and all that he has done. And we all have people in our lives that we aim to please, do we not? 
as an employee, you're Part of your job, I would imagine, is to somewhat please your supervisors, your bosses, things of that nature. As a student, those who go to school, you know, usually you have this desire to please the teacher. You know, you want to do a good job. You want to hear a good report to do good things. What about in a marriage? Shouldn't a husband constantly attempt, you know, make that effort to please his wife and vice versa, a wife to please her husband? What would happen in a marriage if all of a sudden, and this does happen, I mean, thus the uh, divorce ratio, uh, particularly in North America, but what would happen, or what does happen, we know, when all of a sudden, you know, a husband makes that conscious decision that I don't want to be invested in the marriage anymore. I don't want to put that effort in to please my wife, or vice versa, or the wife says, you know, to herself, you know, she doesn't like something about the husband, or she doesn't have those same feelings, and she doesn't have that desire, that passion to please her husband what's the result of that we we know the result of that and once again we know the statistics when we talk about divorce so i'm saying this in terms of our desire as children of the most high the supreme being that we are commanded to be in awe of that we should certainly be in awe of we need to have this burning desire constantly brothers and sisters to please our God. So I'll just throw it out there as a question, not to answer, but just for each and every one of us to ponder and consider. Do we have that desire in our minds, our hearts, and our spirits constantly to please our Father, to please God? The choices, the decisions that we make, and we're all faced with different decisions, whether it's in the house, on the job, wherever it may be. Do we make our decisions with that underlining thought in our minds of, is this pleasing towards my God? Something for us to ponder. How often do we aim to please God? Because that's a part of fearing God, is that desire, that yearning desire, that overwhelming desire to please the eternal being. Joshua chapter 4. Let's turn there. Joshua chapter 4. So we're going to read the account here where the, uh, the Israelites, they just crossed over the Jordan River. Of course, the generation before them, they witnessed the miracle of the Red Sea. So this was basically their, quote-unquote, Red Sea parting, of the Jordan River. Joshua 4, 19, and we'll probably read down to verse 24. So this is an example of God performing a miracle for the purpose of having his chosen people fear him. Joshua 4:19, And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they were out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time come, saying, what mean these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. So that's the miracle, the crossing. Verse 23. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over. 
that all the people of the earth, so the reason why, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you might what? That you may fear, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So we see a part of the reason why Yahweh performs miracles before his people is so that we can learn to fear him, so that we can be inspired to fear him. Revelation 14, verse 6, and this was read in the scripture reading. Let's review it again. Revelation 14, verse 6. And here we see the fear of God should be included in the preaching of the gospel and that it should be a part of our worship. Revelation 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, every kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of waters. So we must, brothers and sisters, learn to fear the eternal. And it's a process. Learn to fear the eternal. Now, I did speak earlier, and I said that the word fear does have dual meanings, of course, depending on the context. There's a right way that we ought to fear God, and there's certainly a wrong way that we should not fear God. Job, let's look, take an exa- look at uh, one of the wrong ways. Turn with me to Job chapter 13. Job 13 and verse 20. Job 13, 20. Only two things do not do to me. So this is Job here. He's praying to God. Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. So basically, Job, he wanted to be close to God. That was his desire, to be close to God. But he prayed that he would not fear God in that negative way, that he would not be afraid of God, which is sometimes what our human inclination would lead towards, for us to be afraid of God. And that's something that Job was aware of, and he prayed that he would not dread God, that he would not be afraid of God. Another example, and we won't turn there, I'll just reference it, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 14, when the disciples were on the boat, and they saw this man, I guess it was dark, walking on water. We know the account, when Jesus Christ himself was walking on water, and they were afraid. Do you remember that? They were scared. They were afraid. And what did Christ say? What did Jesus say? Fear not. Don't be afraid. So this is the type of fear that God does not want us to have. He doesn't want us to have fear. He wants us to have reverence and respect and be in awe of him, but he doesn't want us to be afraid of him. Matthew 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So here we see two different uses of the word fear. 
So once again, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear, that's referring to, of course, the godly fear, him, which is God, the Almighty, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So God does not want us to be afraid of mankind or any man because it's limited what they're able to do to us. But God wants us to have a healthy fear and to be in reverence and in awe of him. And right after this, if we go to the next verse in verse 29, after God instructs us how we ought to fear, he goes on to show us just how valuable we are as his children. And not two sparrows or are not two spirits sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So it would make sense, brothers and sisters, that if God is going on here to illustrate just how valuable we are to him as his children, just how precious we are to him that our very hairs on our head, and I know I don't have too much, <laughs> are numbered. Just how precious we are to God. It would make sense that he wouldn't want us to be afraid of him. Why would he want us to be afraid of him if indeed we are this valuable and precious to him? I'll read a quote here. This is from a gentleman named Oswald Chalmers. He's an early 20th century evangelist. And this just puts it in perfect perspective. It makes so much sense. He says, the remarkable, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. So check this out. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Isn't that profound? And that's directly in line with what we just read. God doesn't want us to be afraid. He wants us to have a healthy type of fear a godly fear. Praise the Lord. So the fear of the eternal is basically having a deep-rooted reverence for him that makes us desire with all our being, brothers and sisters, with all our heart, all our minds, and all our soul to please him at all costs. When we truly fear him, we recognize that he is the master and we are the servants that he is the potter and we are the clay so that's the first point the second point brothers and sisters that i really want to emphasize is that and this is very important is that godly fear is mixed with love and obedience godly fear is mixed with love and obedience it's actionable You see, we have this deep-rooted fear for God. We're in awe of him. We respect him. We love him. Does it stop there? Should it stop there? Probably not. The next stage of really displaying our fear for God, and as I said, it's actionable. If we love God, we have to be obedient to his word. What did Christ say himself? This exact words where, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. So a major part of fearing God 
that goes along with, of course, once again, having the respect, having that awe and that desire to serve him is to actually do just that, to follow through with that action and to actually obey his will, to obey his word. Proverbs 16, verse 6. Let's take a look there. Proverbs 16, verse 6. Wants to demonstrate that godly fear, fearing God, actually restrains us from sinning. We have this deep desire to once again obey His word, that we're not attracted to the things of this world. Proverbs 16, verse 6 By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So godly fear allows us to depart from evil. It restrains us from doing the things of this world, the things that we are not supposed to do. But once again, I want to underscore, brothers and sisters, that developing this godly fear, it's a process. It takes time. It's a lifelong commitment. Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Let's take a look there. Once again, when we think of godly fear, I want us to consider our love and our obedience to his word. I want to actually further exam, uh, examine godly fear versus human fear. So Exodus 19, beginning in verse 16. Give me a second to find it here. So, of course, we know the Ten Commandments, which is given in the chapter uh, after this, Exodus 20. So I want us to take a look at the setting that those commandments were given. And oftentimes we'll go right to Exodus chapter 20 with actually, without considering the setting that took place during the giving of these commandments, Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud. We see here a very, very rocky scene. So that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses on top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So we see a lot at play, a lot going on there. So as we jump forward, let's do that to Exodus chapter 20. Let's go to the next chapter, Exodus 20, which is the giving of the commandments. And we'll further read how the people trembled and the fear that they had. Not the godly fear, but they were actually afraid. They were actually afraid of the presence of God, which is not the type of fear that God wants us to have. So if we look at verse 18, Exodus 20, 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Verse 20, and Moses said to the people, do not fear. So basically, don't be afraid. 
For God has come to test you, and that his fear, so not the human fear, not that cowardly fear, but his fear, godly fear, may be before you, so that what? That you may not sin. So once again, we see the purpose of developing and having this godly fear, fearing the eternal, so that we may not sin. So right there in verse 20, once again, we see two types of fear. We see the godly fear that we ought to have, and then we see the other fear, that human fear, that terror that God does not want us to have. So we must, brothers and sisters, learn to fear the eternal in that godly way, the godly kind of fear. So back to the children of Israel. As we know, they were rescued from bondage in Egypt. They were brought into their own land. Of course, God blessed them in abundance. They were given everything that they could have wanted. We saw they were just given the Ten Commandments. We just referenced that. So the question is, what happened? What went wrong with the children of Israel? Why did they keep falling off track? Just imagine. Think about it for a second. You're in this treacherous condition. You're, you're a slave, you know, for years and years and we, we know the story. You're rescued out of that. You're brought into your own land. We know, you know, milk and honey and manna. Given blessings in abundance. God chose them as his people. It was a marriage. He married this nation of Israel. Why did they keep falling off track? Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. So the children of Israel, the people of Israel, brothers and sisters, they had a heart problem. They didn't fear God. They didn't love God with all their heart, mind, and soul. They didn't have that awe, that desire, that reverence to please him constantly. And the result of not having that godly fear, that awe, and that burning desire to please God will fall into sin. And the rest is history. We we see, we know what happened there. So basically, brothers and sisters, we demonstrate our fear to God when we do what he commands us to do. Let me repeat that. We demonstrate our fear to God when we do what he commands us to do. 1 John 4, verse 17. 1 John 4, verse 17. This talks about the love aspect of godly fear. It says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. So once again, that worldly, that human, that cowardly kind of fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. So again, the point is made, brothers and sisters, that God does not want us to be afraid of him. He wants us to have this perfect love for him, which is what godly fear is all about. 2 Timothy 1, 
2 Timothy chapter 1. How does having the fear of God affect the way we live our lives? Well, let's take a look. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a strong mind. And I'll just note here that the word fear in this context here in the Greek, in the New Testament, it's pronounced Delilah or Delia, I believe. It's Strong's 1167. It's used about eight or nine times. And it's only used in a negative context in terms of that humanly cowardly type of fear. So once again, I'll just read it again. 2 Timothy 1.7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So godly fear, brothers and sisters, it inspires us to act. Godly fear, having the right kind of godly fear, it allows us to examine our lives. Proverbs 6, verse 16. Let's take a look there. Proverbs 6, verse 16. This is a well-known line of text in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs 16, verses 19 outlining the things that our Lord despises, the things that our Lord hates. Proverbs 16 to 19. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies. And in Adrian's exhortation, he spoke about that false witness. And he that soweth discord among the brethren. So without godly fear, brothers and sisters, these are some of the things that we will partake in. That, of course, are contrary to the ways of God. Things that God hates. And don't turn there. I'll just reference it. But Proverbs 8, verse 13, it says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So this is what it's all about. It says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. So basically, if we fear God, brothers, in the right way, if we have this right kind of godly fear, we will hate the same things that God hates. That's what God wants. He wants us to love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates. And we just read a little bit about the things there in Proverbs that God hates. And we know that God hates sin. So likewise, as children of God, if we have this proper, healthy type of godly fear, if we develop this healthy type of godly fear, we should hate sin. Philippians 2. Let's turn there. Philippians 2, verse 12. Verse 12 and 13. This is likely one of the most misunderstood passages in the word of God. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with what? With fear and trembling. For it is good, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So fear and trembling. And we understand, those of us who are mature in the faith, that this isn't telling us that we're supposed to be afraid of God as we strive towards perfection, as we work out our, our salvation, that we're supposed to be afraid and we're supposed to tremble at the thought of you know, being cast into an ever-burning uh, lake or ever-burning hellfire. That's not what the scripture is saying. When it talks about fear, this is the godly type of fear that we've been reading throughout these scriptures. That perfect fear, once again, that reverence, that awe, that desire to please God. That's how God wants us to work out our salvation, to have that fear, to love him and to obey him. And as far as the trembling is concerned, it's basically speaking of stirring up, to be moved, to be inspired, to be motivated, to 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 want to uh, to succeed in Christ work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling so that desire that yearning desire to serve him and to do what is good to move us to perfect us to good works and the feast of tabernacles which we just observed the seven day feast plus one day the last great day is one of the perfect is a very perfect ideal opportunity for us to learn to fear God. One of the things that me personally that I enjoy most about the feast, as I said, this is my my 15th Feast of Tabernacles, is that we get to be away from the world, you know, the hustles and bustles of life and this and that that often brings, you know, certain stresses and whatnot. We get to leave all that behind and we're amongst the family of God. We're amongst our brothers and sisters for a period of eight days, you know, nine days in in total, perhaps sometimes it could be ten. But we're away for a little over a week, and we're constantly being fed. And our brother spoke about that earlier in terms of that spiritual meat. We were fed that spiritual meat for over a week, day after day. Most Feasts of Tabernacles have different, you know, fellowship activities and different Um, you know, opportunities where people can connect and get to know each other. It's a perfect opportunity to get to know somebody new, as our sister Sheila spoke about. She had the opportunity to connect with some new people. Even those who you're familiar with, people perhaps in your congregation or in your, you know, close circle, you get an opportunity to perhaps connect with them on an even deeper level. And that's an amazing thing that the feast affords us to do. And that's all a part of fearing God, fearing the eternal, because that's exactly what he wants. Proverbs 19, as we begin to wind down, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. So the fear of the Lord, brothers and sisters, leads to life. We have to learn to fear the eternal. Proverbs 10, verse 27. Proverbs 10, 27. It says, The fear of the Lord 
prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. So this ties in perfectly with the first commandment with promise, which of course is honor your father and mother, that your days on this earth will be long. So if we fear God, it will prolong our days. And that's the basic principle. Because we know if we don't fear God, if we don't have this healthy fear of God, we're not obeying his word, we're falling into sin, then that leads to death. So the fear of the Lord prolongs days. Malachi 3.16. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who what? Those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. So we see here that God will remember and reward those who fear him. God will remember, brothers and sisters, and reward those who fear him. Our names will be placed in the book of life. Praise the Lord. So as I wind down here, one of the things as well that was referenced at the jump by our dear brother, Pastor Adrian Davis, when he was talking about the holy days, how God has them as, I guess you can say, landmarks to remind us about the plan of salvation, about his plan for not just us as first fruits, but his plan of salvation for the entire world. Of course, beginning with Passover, because that's where essentially it all began. And this plan, of course, had to be initiated after the fall of man. Christ had to die. And it's all about reconciliation. It's all about that love story. And we know what that's all about. But it's interesting, when you think of the plan of salvation, when you think of the holy days, brothers and sisters, and how they're strategically planned throughout the year to once again keep us focused, keep us on track, to remind us of who God is and what he's doing and how we ought to live our lives, the largest gap between holy days is actually the last great day and Passover. So I did a little math this morning, and from today to Passover uh, 2019, there's exactly 195 days. So Passover is in 195 days. That seems like a pretty long time. <laughs> that seems like a very, very long time. So the purpose, one of the things that hopefully we get out of the feast, those of us who observe God's Feast of Tabernacles, and tied in, of course, with the eighth day of the feast, the last great day, hopefully we learned to fear the eternal. Hopefully as a result of being at that feast, it would draw us closer to God in such a way and closer to each other in such a way that it would actually move us, encourage us, inspire us, and sustain us, brothers and sisters, until the next holy day because we need once again those holy days to keep us on track to remind us of why we're doing what we're doing and who god is and once again 195 days is a large gap turn with me to ecclesiastes chapter 12 and i'll end it on this ecclesiastes chapter 12 
Because we need to have a deep respect and reverence for God. And we can't do it on our own. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'll end it here. So this book, of course, which is written by King Solomon, one of my favorite books in the Word of God. One of the reasons I love this book, it's just so, it's, first of all, it's poetic, and I, I love poetry. And it really simply lays out the purpose of life. You know, it'll talk about the vanities of this life and things that we shouldn't do and, of course, things that we should do. And he breaks it down very simply. But once again, we're talking, brothers and sisters, about fearing God, learning to fear the eternal. And as I said, the Feast of Tabernacles, which most of us just came out of, is a perfect time, a perfect place to develop, to learn to develop that godly fear. You know, hopefully we were inspired by the messages Hopefully, we contributed towards somebody else's feast experience, and that's the aim. But back to fearing God for one second. Remember, we're talking about having this deep-rooted respect, this deep-rooted awe, this passion, this desire to want to please our master, our creator. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, as I said, the second point, is we have this deep desire, this deep awe, this deep respect, this passion to want to please God. And if indeed that is the case, it's shown by our actions, in our conduct, our obedience to his word. Because it's not enough for us to say that, you know, I love God, I fear God, and, you know, this, that, and the other. God wants us to work. He wants to see results. He wants to see action. And that's the God that we serve. So when we look at Ecclesiastes, and let's go to the end, chapter 12, and verse 13, where it says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So this, of course, is bringing the book, or chapter of Ecclesiastes, to a conclusion. As the writer here, King Solomon, the wise King Solomon, once again, talking about life, and the purpose of life, and the things that we ought to do, and the things that we ought not to do, he ends it here. And this is what I want to encourage each and every one of us, brothers and sisters, over the course of the next, how many days? 195 days. This is what I want to encourage all of us to have on the forefront of our minds, our hearts, and our spirits over the next 195 days leading to Passover 2019, and that is this, to fear God, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, to fear God and to keep his commandments, because this is the whole duty of man. God be with you. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. 
To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you.